0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now, here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen.
1: Welcome everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. Today I'm really excited to have two special guests who are well known in the primary care community. The first is Dr. Christina Koronek. She is a associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Alberta and has worked as a family physician in Edmonton for the past 15 years. Tina is the director of PEER, a group of passionate primary care clinicians who seek to improve patient care through evidence synthesis and knowledge translation. PEER produces tools for which are evidence-based summaries that are distributed to over 38,000 clinicians every two weeks. They also submit primary care guidelines. The most recent guideline from Tina that we're going to discuss today has to do with opiate use disorder in primary care. And they also uh, host an annual evidence-based medicine conference called PEEP, I believe, P-E-I-P, Tina's research interests include practical questions related to the improvement of primary care. She's a member of the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health Care and is involved in the Pragmatic Trials Collaborative, which engages community physicians in clinical trials that seek to answer questions regarding important patient outcomes. Tina is happily married with four kids and enjoys most things outdoors. Our other special guest is Dr. Mike Allen, who is a director of program and practice support in the College of Family Physicians of Canada and professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Alberta, most of us who work in uh, health care know uh, Mike primarily through his simplified guidelines that got a huge amount of press and continue to serve as a guideline for how healthcare providers, in particular those in primary care, should help patients navigate this very, very complex area. So we're going to talk a bit about the Canadian simplified guidelines for cannabis today as well. He has been in practice over 20 years, has given over 300 invited presentations, and has published over 100 articles. He contributes to a regular evidence-based update called Tools for Practice, which is distributed to over 35,000 clinicians, and has published in the Journal of Canada Family Physician. He also co-presents a weekly medical podcast on iTunes called Best Science Medicine Podcast, and we'll put a link up to that podcast uh, with this session. So, maybe what we'll do, and Tina, i'll get to I'll start with you actually, is uh, just to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're from.
2: I'm a family physician, I trained and uh, practice here in Edmonton, so pretty much grew up here and haven't left uh, and I've been practicing for about fifteen years. So when I was a resident, actually, Mike Allen was my preceptor, so that's oh. how I started my interest in uh, in the research world and just uh, some skepticism around some of the things that we were being taught and uh, some of the practices that we were doing, you know, what is the actual evidence and patient-oriented outcomes. So I started uh, as a resident looking into the research world and uh, sort of writing evidence summaries and reviewing evidence. And since then, we've just uh, continued to grow as a team and learned a whole bunch and had some other people join us so that we can do um Projects that hopefully are useful to primary care physicians uh, across the country.
1: Well, they're they're actually groundbreaking, really. They are so important. They're almost like a lifeline for most of us, especially when we're having these conversations with our patients. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when you feel really lost in some areas, especially around the cannabis piece. But they are a lifeline. They really are. So you're doing some amazing work, uh, the both of you. Mike, if you could tell a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm a family doctor as well by training uh, comprehensive uh, family doc, and then, um, or generally comprehensive. That all depends on who's measuring your your comprehensiveness. <laughs> but anyhow, and I, uh, I got in, interested in evidence and um, research uh, very early on, and uh, became a faculty member out at U of A, where um, I met Tina, and we just kind of grew the peer program um, together shortly after she finished her residency, and I grew with Mike Colber and. My collaboration with James and, and the team's collaboration with James, and then gradually adding everyone on, like Adrian and Scott Garrison, and, and all sorts of people. So it's grown to quite a big group now. Um, we could list everybody, but that would put your listeners to sleep. So I'd say that the work that you're going to hear about or we're going to talk about was not just by myself or by Tina, it was a huge group of people. And then, where it's a guideline, it's not just the peer team, it's the It's the collaborators with the peer team who are practicing clinicians. So that's kind of where we're at. Now I'm with the College of Family Physicians of Canada, and I'm the director of practice support there, which is basically doing what we've been doing all along, providing clinical resources for family physicians and primary care providers on the front line.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. And it is truly, when you look at these documents, it's not just primary care. You're pulling in all different types of disciplines uh, to, to sort of work yeah, on sure. some of these guidelines. So they're pretty amazing. So maybe, Mike, we'll start with cannabis. But uh, Tina, please interject if there's something that you want to put in there as well. And the same for mm-hmm. vice versa, both, both guidelines, because I know that your name is on, both of you have actually contributed to these these uh, papers we're We're all struggling, I think, uh, on the ground around how we navigate the complex area of cannabis, because we know that there is a ton of anecdotal evidence out there from our patients. They're telling us these things. You can go on Dr. Google. But when we're starting to to apply the evidence and trying to manage risk, it just it gets a little bit overwhelming. So I'm just curious about your thoughts, both of you, around cannabis as a medication after looking at the literature and and looking at your findings.
0: One of the things that we say in our team is that we we don't care. And that may sound very negative.
1: <laughs> it's okay. Um, but,
0: but what you're looking for, for someone who's going to look at the literature for you, is somebody who's completely dispassionate. So yeah. if I went in with a belief that, that cannabis was a miracle cure, mm-hmm. or if I went in with a belief that cannabis was uh, a, a sin, then I would have then that would taint how I look at all the literature so you want Mm -hmm. someone ideally who's going to approach it without really quite dispassionately either way Mm -hmm. and so that's what we try and do and I truly I wouldn't have chosen cannabis but what happened was we were giving talks at multiple locations and we give uh, kind of talks on pain would be one of the things and we would talk about what's the new studies and one time when we were doing new studies, we did 10 or 12 new studies. And one of them was a cannabis study. It was the Whiting study. And then afterwards, the follow-up questions were nine of 10 of the follow-up questions were all about cannabis, no matter where we went. Yeah. And it just became really clear to me. And then we looked at the literature, and there was literature that family doctors were hungry for information on cannabis. And when we spoke to them in person, not just at the conferences, we we found that many of them were frustrated and, and wanted more information. So that's kind of the background that I think you need to understand. What's my general thoughts about cannabis? It's that it, has a, it clearly has an effect, right? That's mm-hmm. why some yep. people are, are using it. It speaks to some of the anecdotal stuff, but it's also some of the recreational mm-hmm. component to it. So it's having an effect. So it's likely, it, it likely has additional effects rather than just what's commonly thought of as making people feel high. And if you look at the, the medical literature... It's not really relevant to primary care, but the studies done of childhood pediatric seizure disorders is really quite Mm -hmm. well done studies. Now, Mm -hmm. I've heard people complain about them, but in the field of cannabinoid research, it's really the stand out studies as the best and some of the best run studies. And they definitely show an effect in these very hard to treat populations. So I think it would be false to dismiss that it has any benefit in any area of medicine, Mm -hmm. just as false, uh, just as it's false to say that it has, it's a cure all for everything. I mean, that's,
1: right. there's lots
0: of reasons why that thinking can occur, but I think it's, you know, the research doesn't support it and just simple logic doesn't support it. There's, I, I would find it shocking if we ever found one single thing that was a panacea for all that ails us. Right. Um, yeah. So it's. I think it's. Uh, our general thoughts are we don't. We didn't really care what we find with cannabis, mm. um, but uh, we were interested in it because it was a, such an important topic for family physicians.
1: Well, it's it's one of these situations too where your patients are coming to you as the experts. I mean, those that are very interested now, mind you, we're getting more and more, especially in that older age group. Uh, which I kind of men- mentioned uh, further on, but that that uh, you know the 64 and above, you know that 45 to 64 year, and I think that's being sort of we're seeing that in in actually the the, the data, the data that the that Health Canada is following, that there is more and more in that middle age group and older that are coming and requesting cannabis, but uh, mm-hmm. early on it, it tended to be people that were really seasoned users. They were not cannabis yeah. naive at all. They really knew what they wanted. They just there were different motivations around that. And so the other thing too about the pediatric—I mean, that was pure—it's pure CBD, isn't it, with the seizure, uh, the treatment yes, of seizure? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and yeah. I think that distinction is important. I don't know if if I'm so over overestimating or over sort of uh, thinking that, but when 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 I see benefit to people who are using cannabis therapeutically, medically, it's usually CBD that we're thinking of. I don't know if if you both you or Tina feel that way or. Are you seeing well, that? we'll
0: talk about that a little bit more when you, if you, I mean, we can talk yeah. about it now about teasing out the differences between the two components. There are only a tiny handful of randomized control trials that have actually examined, even compared one component to the combination components. That's yes. actually relatively rare. So it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, and when you say that something's not working, one of the responses that you'll get is, well, they don't have the right combination. It's kind of a special pleading logic yes. fallacy argument. Well, you used 11.5% CBD and 12% THC, and what you needed was 12 and 11.5 the other way. And it, mm-hmm. it becomes kind of this very difficult argument to have, because it can always be some different concoction, some different potency, some different yeah. combinations. So we really have to be critical enough to look at the medical literature in a Kind of reasonable way and accept that we don't really have as much information as we would all love to believe that we have. Yeah. So in the world of THC-CBD, I'm aware of only five uh, randomized control trials that have used any combination in comparison. And they're not all in the same area, so it's very hard to compare. One was in terminal cancer and looked at weight loss. Another one was in uh, patients with very refractory cancer pain and on 270 milligrams of morphine on average. Another one was brachial plexus injuries. Mm-hmm. The third was chronic pain, but it had this incredibly strange design where they um, had you use THC-CBD combination, and then you were to compare every other product you use to that combination at the beginning. And mm-hmm. so you were rating whether it's the same or or better or worse. Um, and then the last one was the best one. It was done in published in 2019. And, and it's ironic. I'll say it's the best study available, but it's, it had 20 people and they were followed for three hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you'll say, they'll you'll say, well, that's, that's not very impressive, but actually they did a lot of things right that they, they obviously the duration wasn't adequate, mm-hmm. um, but they compensated for that by actually measuring levels, following what, what happens to people and, how they feel, reporting of feeling high, reporting of feeling agitated, and psychedelic effects is what they called some of the um, adverse events and and all sorts of things. And they actually compared, this is the first study really that did a great job of comparing high-dose THC with very little CBD to a combination product with similar amounts of both to mostly CBD and very little THC in a smoke product with a very controlled inhalation device, making sure that everybody got the same kind of dosing, and then a placebo-type um, hemp-like product. And mm-hmm. in that, what they found is that CBD alone had no effect on pain. That was the, the effect on pain was actually, if you were to guess, it seems worse than mm-hmm. placebo.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: the combination product actually had the best effect on pain. And mm-hmm. then THC alone was somewhere between the combination and placebo. So if you were to guess and you were to look at the other three or, sorry, four randomized control trials, you would see suggestions in that data that the combination product is better than either one alone um, and certainly better than CBD. CBD alone in pain seems to come out kind of at the bottom. Okay. Um, so, so when you say like CBD seems to be the active component, it depends on what, you mean by the active component, it depends on the condition you're treating. And I think that again goes back to the whole idea of, you know, I don't think this is a panacea and I don't think we know very much about it yet. But if you were to guess from the medical literature, particularly around pain, you would guess that a combination of THC, CBD would be preferred to either one alone.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So when you say high THC, what do you actually, what is that? What is high THC? (laughs)
0: Right. So what is high (laughs) THC? So generally considered over 15%. That's what uh, has been talked about before. But as you know, now most of the, at least about half of the products that are available for medical use anyway, are kind of 15% and above THC. And that before was considered very high level. So we have to recognize that things are changing all the time in this uh, marketplace and in the in the medical situation, and we're getting higher and higher amounts of THC. And the THC used in this recent study that I said was high was 22% THC and less than 1% CBD.
1: And they, they would be cannabis-tolerant patients, right? Are we, we we wouldn't consider just s- <laughs> considering a, a 22%? I don't think
0: you, you would start 22% THC on anyone
1: yeah.
0: um, who wasn't tol- at least somewhat tolerant to the yeah. product. I mean, the advocacy is for somewhere between kind of three, six, tops 9% for for, um, early users, right? And then then when you're talking a 9% THC, you're talking about one marijuana-type cigarette or a cannabis cigarette. You're talking about one drag off that every four hours is what was originally recommended. Um, So we're talking about very minimal (coughs) dosing compared to what the kind of dosing that some of our, some of the products that are being delivered now and the doses that they're being delivered in.
1: Interesting. I didn't know if you had anything to add to that, Tina.
2: The only thing I will say, going back to the uh, when we talked about, do we, you know, what do we think of this as a as a medicine? Uh, and when we went into looking at this, I think our everything we look at, we really hope we find something that works um, because okay. we recognize that. I mean, even your discussion of elderly patients coming in asking about this speaks to the fact that we are not always doing a great job of managing pain. And so they're really looking for an answer. And it, it is hard when we look at the evidence, like Mike just talked about, especially the, the CBD. The trial that showed CBD was basically worse than placebo. It's, uh, it's somewhat disheartening. Yeah. But again, that idea that if, if individual patients are saying they, they have a benefit, I don't recommend it per se, but I'm I'm certainly not going to discourage them from using it if they feel that, that that's helping.
1: And, and can I ask the question now, because I'm really curious, is there any cannabis in Canada that does not have THC in it? I know that there is a product, the seizure product that's used in the States is just pure CBD, but is there any product available in Canada that is only CBD?
0: I, I would not say there isn't, because I... Th- I think right now there's so many manufacturers with so many formulations that are far beyond simply um, dried cannabis anymore. So when you think about just (laughs) for a moment, think about how many licensed producers there are, how many different strains there are, how many different modes we can uh, attain cannabis derived products from or, or into we, you know, it's just that, that, that is kind of an exponential at each stage growth. And so, is there, if you ask me right now if there's a CBD product out there or, or primarily CBD product out there um, from cannabis manufacturers, I'd have to guess yes. But I do know that when I recently tried to assist a patient in attaining it, we uh, banged our head against that wall for probably two months with me writing multiple letters before they finally went and got it just from a, a CBD store.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: So I think there's, if you, if you ask me, there's something out there for sure, because there are just pure CBD stores now, but there are, or at least that's how they uh, market just... themselves. Yeah. But I, I don't, I don't know what's happening with each manufacturer. That is really, Yeah. it's, Yeah. I I buy shoes, but I don't know what's happening with each shoe manufacturer in the world right now. Exactly.
1: So, I mean, it's knowing. So that's the thing that I find is that often when patients want that medical documentation is that they'll come in and say, look, I just want CBD only. I I think of that as a CBD takedown kind of thing. And I'm just like, well, I don't know if we have anything that's available to us. Like if you had somebody, say you had a 64-year-old cannabis naive individual coming to you wanting to give cannabis a try. So where, where would you direct them? And and what uh, what sort of uh, formulation would you recommend
0: so in health canada there is a list of licensed producers we also produced we also provided a list of licensed producers in the simplified cannabinoid guidelines so mm-hmm. that is a, is available online now it's not up to date because the second it was published it wasn't up to date anymore
1: right um, yeah. but <laughs> it
0: would be reasonably accurate still mm-hmm. and so i would have them contact the uh, licensed producers to find out which ones actually have CBD only available if that's what they wanted. Um, but I think they could find products that were almost entirely CBD or very, very low THC. If they were advocating for CBD alone, I, I've just explained to you that CBD probably doesn't do much on its own, but I have yes, patients who yeah. really, really yeah. want to try it or believe in it, or they're trying it for something that's that's really outside of what we generally recommend then I'm certainly not going to say no. I'm just going to do the usual doctor thing of of go slow, um, yeah. t- low doses, all of those kind of things. Yeah. So that's the way I would approach any of those when we're talking about the things that are against, or not against, but don't follow the general recommendations. When we're when we're treading in that water, I I'm always very cautious and slow. Um, I don't say I don't say completely no all the time. I just Go very slow and very cautious with low doses and and that kind of thing. Low potency.
1: Would would uh, would hemp CBD be uh, reasonable? I mean, it's a. I think it's what two point five percent CBD. I'm just <laughs> putting it out there. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, know. I so so just I know and what's I in do it. Are science
0: and what you're talking about is yeah. art.
1: Okay, right? all right. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm yeah. Not trying to
0: not trying to run you down at all. Not like, at all. The questions yeah. you're giving are completely reasonable. It's yeah. just
1: just trying weird. to pick your brains. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah.
0: If I spent my life doing this, I would feel comfortable answering that. But yeah. I'm a family doctor, and so I. I see these problems, and I'm good at managing. um, Well, good. I'm I'm good at managing uh, chronic pain with the tools that I have. Right. Um, yeah. But as Tina said, we're not great at managing chronic pain, but a lot of that has to do with that most of our choices. tools are exactly
1: the tools are terrible. No, I just yeah. think with, with hemp, I know that it's zero point two percent THC and two point five percent CBD, from my understanding. So it, it somehow it feels like a safe concentration to me when I start people off, but I'm not sure if I'm doing them any favors. But as you say, I mean CBD alone is not is not um, is not adequate. Yeah, yeah. We don't, yeah. Yeah. The, we don't the, know how
0: good it is, and for other things that so the the two main things that people ask for these products for is for pain followed quickly by anxiety and yes, and sweet. mood related things yeah. there's almost no research on mood related things and and anxiety the research that's there is generally quite terrible and it's not it's not the kind of thing that patients come to you for they they they're coming for things like general anxiety disorder occasionally yeah. for panic those kind of anxiety conditions and the research the little bit that's been done is on more social phobia or performance anxiety.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
0: and they're all three kind of hours long or very short.
1: I see it used a fair bit for insomnia as well. So, uh, yes, yeah. Yeah. And there is yeah.
0: some research for that. It's just not particularly robust. Okay. Um, research. So Nabilone has been studied for it, for example.
1: Yeah. So we're going to stop here and pick it up next week, where we're going to dig deeper into the recommendations from the simplified guidelines. And we're going to talk about the challenges of trying to establish what can be best practice around the recommendations we make for our patients around cannabis use. So we'll stop there.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at
1: paintalk.ca.